We're now going to turn to our Bible reading. Now, it's quite a long one today. We're continuing our series through Genesis, and we're going to read chapter 7 and chapter 8 today, the story of Noah on the ark. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab one at the end of the row, which is an NIV version, which is what I'm reading from today. And if you don't have your own Bible and you would like one, then you feel free to keep that one at the end of the row as our gift to you. Let's all read together Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds, and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than fifteen cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The water continued to recede until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After forty days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven 
and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth, so it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Now turn your eyes to the screen before Luke comes up. Thank you. You want more proof? I haven't done the pillow of salt thing in a while. That's all right. I believe you. I just, I don't understand why you chose me. You want to change the world, son. So do I. What? Why an ark? I mean, that's like flood territory. You wouldn't do that again. You wouldn't do that. Would you do that? Let's just say that whatever I do, I do because I love you. Well, then you have to understand that this whole building and art thing is really not part of my plans here. I need to settle into my house. I need to make a good impression at work. <laughs> what? Your plans. <laughs> what are you talking? I'm, we're talking about an ark, right? I mean, an ark? An ark is huge. I don't even know where I would begin. Well, I hear that a lot. People want to change the world, don't know how to begin. You want to know how to change the world, son? One act of random kindness at a time. Build the ark. I'll tell you what. You build it, I'll fill it. And if anybody asks, tell them flood's coming. Oh, and uh, you might need this. Okay, so what do I do? I grab the wood. Oh, okay. You know, that's just cruel. Do you see him? I don't see him. Building an ark the old-fashioned way. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He lives in all things 
and has over 6,700,000,000 children. Last week, as part of our Genesis series, we began three weeks on the life of Noah. And as I said last week, Noah is a great Sunday school story. And a story, if you grew up in church from a, the young age, you would have heard the story many times. You'd be know it like the back of your hand. Uh, even if you didn't grow up in church, you would have heard of the story of Noah's Ark. And so it makes a great story because it's visual and it's an exciting story for young people. But I hope over the, uh, the three weeks that we look at this story of Noah and the Ark, that you will see that it's so much more than just a Sunday school story. But it's actually a profound story in history that has a huge impact on not only Noah in his time, but also on us and our time and our culture. So last week we did week one. And as part of the first message, we looked at man's wickedness, Noah's righteousness in the midst of that, and God's graciousness in the events of the flood. But what we didn't focus on in week one was Noah's faith. Now today you might have seen these eerie looking eyes over here, and you might be wondering what they're all about. They're a little bit scary. Uh, it's our kind of creation tree that we've had every week, and each week there's different stuff on there, and today we've got eyes, and what they want, we want those to represent is that God is always watching, and so you can run, but you can't hide, no, only joking, that's not what they represent. What they represent is that Noah is a man who lived through the eyes of faith, that things he, he had not yet seen, he chose to believe because God had said it was so. And so we didn't focus on Noah's faith. But it's got to be said that in this story, the faith he exercised in God is absolutely incredible and should be quite inspiring for us. Verse 6 of today's uh, chapter 7 tells us that Noah was 600 years old when the flood appeared. And if you look through all the details of the story, people guess that it took uh, in between 50 and 100 years to build the ark. Now, 50 years or 100 years uh, is a long time ago. In fact, this week I did the maths and 50 years ago was actually the year 1966, uh, which coincidentally is the year that St Kilda won their one and only premiership. And so I can tell you that 50 years ago is a long time ago. In fact, I've been waiting my whole lifetime to see St Kilda win a premiership and they haven't. Um, the good news is that they've booked another one in. It's in the year 2066 and uh, I'll be 87 in a nursing home. And it'll probably be the day I take my last breath. But as long as I see a grand final, that will be okay. And so that was 50 years ago. Um, Beatles were the music of the day. Um, their song, We Can Work It Out, We Can Work It Out. I love to sing in my messages because it's one of my gifts. Um, that's <laughs> undisputable, obviously. Um, but that was the number one song on the Billboard charts in 1966. It was the same year that Harold Holt took over from Robert Men- Menzies as the Prime Minister of Australia. And the Beaumont children disappeared in Adelaide, never to be seen again. That was 50 years ago. But 100 years ago, if you're good at maths, you'll know that it's even longer than 50 years. And so when you go back 100 years, it brings you to the year 1916, which was the middle of World War I. Canned beer, frozen food and crosswords hadn't been invented. There was no such things as TVs, mobile phones or even Pokemon. How did we get by? It's incredible. The average life expectancy of men in 1916 was 48 years of age. It took five days to travel from New York to London, and it took three and a half months to travel from England to Australia. My dad tells me they were really hard days. They were the hardest days of his life. (laughs) But when we think about how far that is, 50 years or 100 years ago, it's a long time. 
And it gives us some context or some understanding of exactly how long Noah kept building and kept the faith while building the ark. So much changes in 50 years, so much changes in 100 years, and it would have for Noah as well. And yet through all the changes in his lifetime, he kept building. Now, Scripture doesn't give us much detail about the construction But considering the end of the story that Noah and his family were the only ones that ended up getting on the ark with the animals, it'd be reasonable to assume that nobody else listened or believed what Noah was saying. God went to Noah and we read in the passage today that he gave him some very precise dimensions to build an ark. And as far as we know, he had no qualifications as an ark builder. Now it's always been difficult to kind of visualise how big the ark was. Um, Today it's a lot easier, thank you to Ken Ham, um, who has built a life-size replica of the ark. And so you can Google that and you can have a look at it. Or if you're in Kentucky sometime, you can even go and visit for about $40. And you can go and see this incredible project where he has built a life-size replica of the ark. To give you an idea, the ark that he has built recently cost $100 million to build. It's seven stories high, it's 200 metres long, and it's the bigger t- biggest timber-framed structure on the planet. And so it gives you an idea of how incredibly big this ark is, and it was a huge job for Ken Ham and, and the builders who've just done it recently with all their modern-day technology, but it'd be a much bigger project for Noah back in the day, and that's why it took so long to build. And so God went to Noah... And he told him to build this monstrous ark. And he said, the reason for building the ark is that water is going to fall from the sky and come from the earth and it's going to flood the entire world. Now, for us, rain coming from the sky is normal, isn't it? Like just a couple of nights ago, Thursday night, we had torrential rain. And I thought maybe God was about to revert the promise and flood the world again. There was so much rain that we're kind of used to rain falling from the sky. But what we need to understand is at this point in history... It had never actually done that before. Water had never fallen from the sky. And so that God they could not see and did not believe came and told Noah to build a massive ship because he was going to judge all of creation by sending water from the sky. Now it sounds as far-fetched as you could possibly imagine and as far-fetched as you could possibly get in the minds of these people. And so we can only imagine that there would have been some people in Noah's world that may not have believed him or even thought that he was crazy. I can imagine people walking around and believing that he was kind of like the village nut, and they'd walk past and throw out insults and and give him a hard time. The movie Evan Almighty, which we just saw a clip from, is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I recommend watching it. It's very funny. But it's a great movie because it's a modern take on the Noah story. And there are, in that story, people walking past, ridiculing uh, Evan for building the ark. But I think the movie also does a great job of capturing how the community and even Noah's family must have felt throughout this project. I wonder what his wife thought. I wonder if she ever asked the question, are you sure that God said to build an ark? Are you sure God said rain was going to fall from the sky? Uh, are you sure that we, put, we should put our life on hold for up to a century to build an ark? I wonder if she asked him if he was going through a midlife crisis. Like, is this a midlife crisis? Because you're 600 years old. You're too old for a midlife crisis. Wake up, get a Ferrari, do something else. But does it have to be an ark? I wonder about his kids. I can imagine my kids. 
Dad, this is so embarrassing. I can't believe you do this to us, Dad. We could be catching Pokemon right now and you're building an ark. What about Noah? I wonder how Noah felt. He must have had moments of fear, moments of great doubt. And in the midst of it all, Noah kept building. And a week before the flood, God said, I want you to get on the ark now, all the animals with your family. And even though there was no sign of rain, there's no sign of a flood coming, Noah got on the ark. Let me tell you, that's incredible faith. Incredible faith to believe in something that you've never seen before. Now, I don't usually go into application so early in a message, but I think that the application is quite profound for us from Noah's story. Because I think his culture and our culture are very similar. And I think the story of Noah actually points to a bigger story, and that's the story of the gospel. Noah's culture, we read last week, was broken, and it was full of wickedness. The last chapter told us that every inclination of the thoughts of every heart was only wicked all of the time. God said to Noah, the judgment's coming. We talked last week about the fact that God's a holy God and he can't tolerate sin. And so he said to Noah, I'm going to judge the world for their wickedness. And the only hope you have of surviving is my grace. And so by my grace, I'm going to tell you how to build an ark. And on that ark, I want you to take you and your family and two of each animal. And your only hope of escaping the coming judgment is by putting your faith in me and getting on that ark. In verse 22 of chapter 6 and in verse 5 of chapter 7, it tells us that Noah did all, all that the Lord commanded. Noah did all that the Lord commanded. In the presence of a changing culture, in the face of complete wickedness, through all the doubts and fears of his own heart, Noah kept building. He kept putting his faith in God. Now I want you to take Noah's story and camp it there and now let's compare it to our story. Because I think there's some great similarities. We live in a culture that is also broken and full of wickedness where it seems to be getting darker all of the time. God said to us through his word, the judgment is coming when Christ returns. Jesus is going to judge the world for our wickedness. And the only hope that we have is his grace. And so God says, by my grace, and because I so love the world, I've given you my one and only son. Jesus says, I'm the only hope of escaping the coming judgment. By accepting what I did for you at the cross, that I died in your place for your sin. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And so the question for us today is, will we be people who put our faith in him in the midst of a changing world? Noah did everything the Lord commanded. And this will be the great challenge for the church in the days to come, in the weeks to come, in the months and decades and centuries to come. The great challenge for the church is as as we're pushed back onto the margins, will we be people who continue to stand for God? As I said last week, being pushed back onto the margins is not a bad thing. The church has always been more passionate, more powerful, more purposeful when it's on the margins and not in the centre of society. And so last week I said we shouldn't mourn the end of Christendom. We shouldn't try and fight to get ourselves back in the centre. We shouldn't um, try and assimilate into a new, new world view, but we should embrace what's happening as a great opportunity for mission. That we are, like once again, the early church back on the margins where we can live for Christ in a very powerful way. And so the question is, as we're pushed back onto the margins, will we simply assimilate into a new and popular worldview that's being um, preached by the world around us, or will we be people who stand on God's word? Noah's a great example for us. 
as someone who walked with God. He was a man of faith in the most difficult circumstances. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the chapter we know as the heroes of the faith, it picks up on Noah. It says from verse 6, Without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And so the question for Noah is the same question for us. In the presence of a changing culture, in the face of a complete um, wickedness that we see around us, through all the doubts and fears in our own hearts, when the love of most grows cold, will we keep trusting in the work of the cross? That's our challenge. And church, I want to tell you today, we're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit. Because we're going to live in a world where it's going to become increasingly difficult to make a stand for God. And we're only going to be able to do it if we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. So last week we focused from chapters 5 to 6 on the graciousness of God. But in these chapters, I think the main focus is the work of salvation on God's behalf, seen powerfully in the story of Noah, but ultimately and most crucially in the work of Jesus at the cross. This desire to save is something that comes from the very heartbeat of God. This is a tragic story in many ways. And we read on, on in this story that God wiped out all of creation bar Noah and some of the animals. But I, I believe he took no pleasure in doing so. In fact, in chapter 6, it says, When he saw how great man's wickedness had become, he was grieved and his heart was filled with pain. Now, four months ago, when our little son Lenny was diagnosed with diabetes, it was a difficult time. And I spent five days in hospital with him after he was diagnosed. And, and I remember sitting in the bed or laying in the bed watching him. And I remember my heart being filled with pain and grief. As I looked at my son and I, I realized the pain and, and the things that he was going to have to go through um, probably for the rest of his life. Now, why did I feel that way? I wasn't in pain myself. But I felt that way because I love my kids. We love our kids. I love my son. And as I was thinking about that this week, I, I realized to myself that it's just the tiniest of glimpses of how God must feel when his children, who he created and who he loves, turn away from him and are judged for their sins. I don't think his judgment brings him any pleasure whatsoever. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you and with me, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God delayed his judgment on creation for up to 100 years while Noah built the ark. And I've got no doubt that God would have loved many more people to turn to him in that time because that's his heart, that none should perish. And so today I want to look at this whole idea of salvation. And there's three quick things I want to touch on about salvation from this passage. And the first one is this, that salvation is God's invite to be with him. I love that. Salvation is God's invite to be with him. This week on the phone, I had a phone call from St Kilda Football Club. And they've invited our family down this Thursday uh, to watch training uh, Kim is so excited. She's like a kid in a candy shop. She just can't 
can't contain herself. She's part of the anti-football league. And so she's absolutely thrilled about this. But we've been invited down to training to watch training and then after training to meet Paddy McCartan. Now, uh, most of you here today won't have a clue who Paddy McCartan is. Rob Shrews does. I can see him smiling. Jealous. And uh, so we're going down to meet Paddy McCartan this week. And Paddy McCartan was the number one draft pick two seasons ago. So a very talented footballer is, is probably going to be a great footballer for many years to come. But Paddy McCartan also uh, happens to be a type 1 diabetic, which is what Lenny is. And so through a number of different avenues, some friends of mine organised for the football club to ring us. And so this week, we're going down to meet Paddy McCartan. Um, there's going to be a life-size Lenny the Lion, because that's a diabetes mascot, and our son's name's Lenny. And we're going to meet the players, we're going to get um, some gifts from them, and it's going to be a wonderful day. Um, of course, Kim and Lenny are very excited about it. Um, as a dad, I've got to make time to go. It's, you know, it's one of those <laughs> father of the year kind of things. And so I'll drag my feet along and, and I'll go with them. But it should be a wonderful day. And receiving an invite to an event is usually something that makes you feel good. Uh, unless it's Amway or, you know, a pyramid scheme or something, then the invite's not quite as exciting. But generally speaking, an invite makes you feel good because the person who sent the invite is expressing a desire for you to be where they are, usually to celebrate something great, some sort of occasion. In this story, God was inviting Noah to be with him. In verse 1 of the passage in the NIV, it says, The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Now, the New King James Version, I think, says it better. It says, Come into the ark, you and your entire household. This is an invitation. Noah is being invited by God. God's saying, Noah, I'm asking you to take a big step of faith, but when you do, I will be with you and you will be with me. Salvation is God's invite to be with him. And so God was inviting to Noah to come to him and in the same way God invites us to come to him also through Christ. The cross is an invitation extended by God to repentance and salvation that's been extended to all of us. John 3.16, probably the most well-known passage in all of Scripture, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. This is a stunning, life-changing invitation to be with God. Now, the problem is this, that in life we get lots of invitations to different things. Many temptations this world has. And many of those temptations promise so many great things, so much joy, so much happiness. And they ultimately become the things that that we push God off the throne for, the things that we look to for an ultimate sense of purpose and fulfillment and joy. But ultimately, they'll let us down because only God can bring those things into our lives, the invite to success the invite to wealth, the invite to pleasure, the invite to popularity, the invite to selfishness, the invite to sin. We get these invitations all the time and those temptations are coming in our lives all the time and we're in this constant spiritual battle. And Noah would have faced many of the same invitations in his culture and yet we read that he chose to walk with God. He chose to do all that the Lord had commanded. Just this week, I was trying to put myself in the story. I think when we read the Bible, it's really good to try and put ourselves in a story and try and imagine what the characters were going through. And so I tried to imagine myself on the ark. And I tried to imagine myself on the ark the moment that the first raindrops fell on the roof. Can you imagine that? You're in the ark, you've been there for seven days, 
You're waiting for something to happen. Nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, you hear a drop on the roof. Shh. Cow, shut up. Shh. Another drop. Did you hear that? I think so. And then over the next few minutes, the next few hours, it starts to get heavier and heavier and heavier as the rain starts to pour down on the roof. That rain actually falls from the sky. Can you imagine yourself in that moment after 100 years of building, 100 years of criticism and ridicule, only to hear and see God's promise come to pass? Let me tell you, church, uh, that would have been an awesome day to be on the ark. An awesome day to have accepted God's invitation to be with him. And while it would have been an incredibly awesome day, it would have been an absolutely tragic day as well. As Noah considered those that weren't with them on the ark. Now the text doesn't tell us, but we can only assume that if Noah was a man who walked with God, that he also carried the invitational, inclusive heart of God. And I'd be very surprised if he hadn't pleaded with people for for 50 to 100 years to get on the ark. God's sending a flood. He's going to judge us for our sin. I'm pleading with you, get on the ark with me and my family and you will be saved. Only to be completely rejected in a culture that had completely abandoned God. I don't know if you uh, think like me, but for me that sounds kind of familiar. The work of evangelism can be so encouraging and so discouraging at the same time. When we go and share about the gospel and, and some people come and say, yes, I want to put my faith in Jesus, but the vast majority think that we're crazy. As God invites us to be saved, we are also called to invite others to be reconciled to God. I love the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It starts by saying, for Christ's love compels us. I love that when you consider the love of God, that he has poured his love into our hearts. We don't deserve it, and yet he's poured out his grace upon our lives, that we can be saved from our sin, that we can be set free to live for him, and that we can have the hope of eternal life. That is incredible. That is something we should never take for granted. The gospel is life-changing. And I love how this passage starts. For Christ's love compels us. Right there is the motivation that we need for evangelism as we're gripped by the love of God. He goes on to say, because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Incredible concept. On the day Christ returns, it will be a great day. But it will be a terrible day. As we realise that God is faithful to his promises in Christ, but it will be a terrible day for those who are not found in him. And so compelled by the love of Christ, our mission is to go and to share the incredible news of the gospel so that people can experience salvation, which is God's invite to be with them. I just want to ask you a question this morning, which is probably the most important question to ponder in all of life. 
And the question is this, what will the moment of Jesus' return be like for you? Will it be a moment of incredible relief and joy as the promises of God come to pass and you enter eternal life with him? Or will it be a moment of incredible fear and deep regret? As 2 Corinthians says, today I implore you, as if God is making his appeal through me, to be reconciled to God while you can. Salvation is God's invite to be with him. And it's a free gift. Jesus offers to pay my penalty and your penalty for all of our sin. And all we have to do is receive what he's done for us at the cross. And one day when we stand before God, we'll be declared innocent and we'll be restored into relationship with him for all eternity. That's the gospel. That's incredibly good news. And so first of all, salvation is God's invite to be with him. The second thing is that salvation is secure in him. Uh, Verse 16 is kind of an obscure verse. And it's after Noah and the family and all the animals get on the ark. And then verse 16 says this. It says, then the Lord shut him in. I think it's a powerful verse. If Noah's salvation was a work of God, it was going to be God himself who was going to make sure that he was secure and that he got through the judgment that was to come. And so God shut Noah in the ark to keep him safe from the flood. What we see in this passage is that salvation was completely at the work of God. And we as Christians can know today that our salvation is secure as well because God originated it, because God affected it, and because God will complete it. This was true for Noah, and it's true for us. And we can have great confidence and a sense of real security in our salvation in Christ. Now, I'm convinced that there are many Christians um, that yet haven't still fully understood grace. It's almost like they see it as something that, that's too good to be true. Like, what's the catch? What do I have to do to earn salvation? And some Christians I've met are so extreme in this that they kind of live their lives like salvation is dependent on how good or bad they've been that day. It's kind of like if I, if I do something wrong or say something wrong and I happen to step off the curb at that moment and get hit by a bus, it's like, bang, hell, because I didn't repent just before I got hit by that bus. But the truth is that that's a complete misunderstanding of grace. The grace of God covers our sin in Christ. When we accept Christ's death on our behalf, every sin we've ever committed, every sin we're committing, every sin we'll commit in the future is covered by the grace of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we go on sinning. We don't take the the grace of God for granted. Paul says that we're dead to sin. We're alive in Christ. We want to live our lives to please him. But what it does mean is that when we fall short, which inevitably we all do nearly every day, his grace is sufficient for us. That should give us incredible security and incredible confidence in our salvation. Noah in that ark was there knowing that it was God who shut him in. It was God who was keeping him safe. It was God who was protecting him through the flood. And that must have given him great security. And we can have that same security in Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew, in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Our salvation is secure in God through Christ. The third and final thing is this, that salvation should produce in our hearts great thankfulness and worship. Noah and his family were on the ark for uh, around about 12 months, a long time. Verse 18 tells us exactly what happened in chapter 8 when Noah came out. It said, Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, 
All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Verse 20, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. I love that Noah's first response after getting off the ark was to thank God, was to worship God was to praise and to worship and sacrifice and gratitude for all that the Lord had done. You know, I think this is an area as a church and as individuals we can always get much better at. So often we just take for granted what Jesus has done for us. And sometimes we are quick to grumble and quick to complain and very slow to praise God for what he's done. What he's done for us in Christ is incredible. It's the only hope we have for the future. And he has saved us despite the fact that we don't deserve it whatsoever. And yet so often we wake up in the morning and the last thing in our mind is Christ and what he's done for us. We think about work and we think about the pressures and we think about the disappointments and we think about this, that and everything else. But I want to challenge you and I want to challenge us as a church to be people who are incredibly thankful on a regular basis for what Christ has done. And maybe this week that might be a good challenge that every day you take just a few minutes to write down some things you're thankful for or take a few minutes just to pray but not bringing all your requests but but just spending some time praising God for all that he has done for us. We should be blown away every day by the grace of God. We should go, wow, I'm in awe of how good God is. We have so much to be thankful for. We can be thankful that we've been invited to be with him. We can be thankful that our salvation is secure in him. We've so, got so much to be thankful for. And after all that God has done, Noah did not forget to express his thankfulness. He acknowledged that salvation was a work of God's immense grace and because of that, he was driven to worship God. Each day in our lives and each time we gather as a community, it should never be just a ritualistic going through the motions, but rather it should be a time of great joy, great celebration and immense thankfulness for all that God has done. In a moment, we're going to finish our service by singing a song and, and gathering with one another. And I encourage you to use that time to, to be an expression of your thanks to God. And I want to challenge you this week, every day, in all that you do, do it for the glory of God, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's with your family, whether it's with your friends. Uh, let the words of your mouth be praise and worship and thankfulness of a God who is good all the time. Amen.